Well, hello, Hope City Church. It's good to see you today. And let me just say hello to everybody in our uh, Next Gen room, which is our family service. Uh, hello to everybody over there. I'm hearing that that is a growing and growing crowd. So uh, it's good to see you uh, through the camera and then everybody who's watching online. So many of you are participating in our service online. And then obviously everybody here in the auditorium with us, just thanks for being a part of service today, wherever you are. And however you're doing it, uh, it's good to be together. We are in uh, part five, the last part, the final part of a series called Jonah the Stubborn Prophet. And we've taken the last five weeks to study this bedtime famous childhood story that you probably know, even if you are not a church kid or even if you have never read the Bible, I'm going to guess that you have heard or know the story of Jonah, at least the famous part about him getting swallowed by, by a fish. But we have taken five weeks to, to study this story because there's so much in it for us to learn. And what we're learning is that it's not a cute little bedtime story. It's got teeth. It's about a stubborn man, a prideful man who loves his country more than his God. He hates people of a different race and nationality and struggles to give grace. These are all themes that we're learning from this story. And in case you haven't been here, just kind of recap uh, what's happened up to this point. Jonah has heard a message from God. God wants him to go to Nineveh to, to, to preach for the people to repent. But Jonah hates those people. They're his enemy. He doesn't want to do it, so he tells God no, and he goes and he buys a ticket for a boat headed to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction, the end of the known world, and so he goes. But as he's running from God, he runs right into a storm, which is what always happens because life doesn't get better when you run from God. And he runs right into a storm because sin causes storms. And so uh, the storm happens and the sailors throw Jonah overboard. You probably already know this part of the story, but the, the sailors throw Jonah overboard, not because God was punishing him or trying to get even with him, but because God had a plan for his life. And so in God's grace, he sends a fish. The fish swallows Jonah and Jonah is in the well, the, the, the belly of the fish for, for three days. And while there, he prays to God. And that's where we left off uh, the, the series last week. And the very last verse of chapter two of Jonah, verse 10, says, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. And then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. How many people are glad that God speaks a second time? Anybody glad? God speaks a third time or a 10th time or a hundredth time, right? Uh, God speaks a second time to Jonah. He says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I've given you. And so that's where we are. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the remainder of the story, the conclusion of the story, chapter three and chapter four, which sounds like a lot, but it's only 21 verses because Jonah's actually only 48 verses uh, altogether. So it's not a lot, but it, but it is the final two chapters of the story. And we're going to see what happens the second time. We know what happened the first time. Jonah ran from God, didn't want to do it. Now we're going to get to see what happens a second time because Jonah's been to the bottom now. He's experienced God's grace, and now he gets another chance. Now, I want to warn you uh, that unfortunately it doesn't go well, that, that Jonah doesn't become the, the prophet, the man, the, the leader that we want him to be. Now, that doesn't mean he disobeys God again. To the contrary, he actually does what God wants him to do. But what we're going to see 
is that even while he's doing the right thing, he's still holding on to his stubborn and prideful and hateful tendencies. And here's why he's able to do the right thing for God, but still have all of the wrong things happening in his heart is because behavior doesn't change beliefs. Behavior doesn't change beliefs. This is the lie of religion. Religion says that if you'll act right, you'll be right. But Jonah's story, your story, and my story prove that that doesn't work. You don't change someone's heart by changing their actions. All that does is produce a hypocrite. And maybe that's your experience with church or religion is that people were getting to you trying to get you to change what you do and and change how you act, but they never allowed or, or the Holy Spirit or God never changed your heart. And so what you did is you learned how to act the right way, but that's not who you wanted to be. And that's not what was happening truly in your heart. And that's what's happening with Jonah is that Jonah is gonna behave correctly but Jonah still doesn't believe correctly because behavior doesn't change beliefs. And for what it's worth, by the way, that's why at Hope City, we don't spend a lot of time around here talking about the government. We don't spend a lot of time trying to regulate morality. We don't spend a lot of time talking about laws, trying to get laws passed to get non-Christians to act like Christians. Here's why, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only thing that changes someone's heart is the Holy Spirit giving them a new heart. That's the only thing that changed your life. It wasn't a list of rules. It wasn't a law. It was a heart change by the Holy Spirit. And chapters three and four of Jonah's story are are gonna teach us a really important lesson that if you don't know, you need to learn and maybe you knew it, but you forgot it. It's kind of our, our big idea for the message. Here it is, is that changing your actions won't change your heart, but a changed heart will change your actions. This is the idea. This is the takeaway, the lesson from chapters three and four that we're gonna read together, that changing your actions won't change your heart, but a changed heart will change your actions. Listen to me, every parent of a teenager, of a college-age kid who is making terrible decisions about their life right now, you can get them to try to change their actions, but changed actions don't equal changed heart. Listen to me, wife who's trying to get your husband and been praying for your husband for 10 or 15 years and he's aggravating you and making you angry and not doing the stuff he's supposed to do and you're following Jesus and you want him to follow Jesus, but until he's interested in following Jesus, you're spending all your time trying to get him to act like he's following Jesus, at least behave better. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because changing your actions won't change your heart but changing your heart will change your actions. The easiest thing to do is to act better, but God wants to get to your heart and address what you believe and address what you love and address what's most important to you because that's where the truth comes out and that's where a life change happens. So I wanna pray for us and, uh, and then we're gonna read chapters three and four together and see what, um, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us about changing our heart and that's just not just our actions. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, God. And I pray that today it would be more than just syllables and grammar and an English language that's being spoken. But God, I pray that, that your word would move beyond just what we hear and it would change who we are. 
that supernaturally your word would speak to us and it would get planted deep into our hearts and you would help us to move beyond just trying to do the right things or just trying to act like the right person. And God, you, you would move beyond that and you would get to our heart and you would change who we are, not just what we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, so Jonah chapter three, let's read three and four together. We'll start at verse one. It says, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I have given you. Verse three, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. And on that day, Jonah entered the city and he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God's message and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, he dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. And then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. Not, no one, not even the animals from your herds or flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. In verse 10, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Now we'll read chapter four in just a second, but I think it's worth stopping for a moment and, and making the point that Jonah's message to the Ninevites was not this light kind of cookie cutter principles and philosophy of life. His message was God's wrath. Jonah showed up and said, hey, listen, God's going to destroy this place unless you repent. Now, that's not the kind of preaching that necessarily we prefer. Maybe the reason you're at Hope City is because you got tired of going to a place where the preacher was always preaching God's wrath, hell, fire, brimstone. And you're like, I just like, you know, how we don't do that. And I, I, th I appreciate that. And that's, that's great. But we would, be, we would be silly to pass up the fact here that Jonah did not go into town and say, hey, I'm going to talk about how to find your purpose the next 40 days. He didn't go in and say, I'm going to start a brand new series, how to be a new you. Because there are times in our life, there are, there are moments in our life where it takes the, the wrath, the, the message of the consequences and the wrath of God and the sin of God. Now we know that Jesus came, this is pre-Jesus, so we know that Jesus came and he took the wrath of our sin. So the message we preach is not the same that says that you're going to experience God's wrath, but the message we do preach is that the wages of sin is death and that you don't have to experience the wrath of God anymore because Jesus took that on for you at the cross. And you have a choice now to follow, follow Jesus. And so we work really hard around here to try to preach ways and preach the Bible in an applicable way. But let's don't rush past the, the, the fact that there are some times when the sidewalk preacher with the megaphone who we think looks silly or is saying something silly is saying the same thing we're trying to say just in a different way. And that the wages of sin is death. And that's what Jonah is saying to the people here. He's saying, turn to God or die. 
And that's maybe not how we would say it, but it ain't wrong. Turn to God, turn to God because the wages of sin is death. And so they listen, they listen and they turn. And this is miraculous. This is a revival. Now we're gonna read in just a second that 120,000 people in this city turn to God, they repent. This is a revival of epic proportion. And you would think that for a prophet, I can't speak for Jonah, but I can speak for me, I'm a preacher. Like this is a preacher's dream. Can you imagine filling up Papa John Stadium and, and, and I get to preach a message and every person in the stadium gives their life to Jesus? I mean, that's a preacher's dream. A whole city turning to God. You would think Jonah would be doing victory laps. Jonah would be, you know, Instagramming about this. He would be posting like, look at what God did. But you know, by now that's not, that's not what happened. Chapter four, verse one, after this whole city turns to God, it says this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry, huh? So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love, eager to turn back from destroying people. Now, quick question, and we'll finish reading in a second, but how would Jonah know that God is slow to anger, merciful, gracious, not destroying people? How would Jonah know that? Well, he would know that because Jonah was running from God, disobeying God. And Jonah experienced firsthand how thankfully God is slow to anger, rich in mercy. But isn't it crazy how we forget all the times that we were thrown overboard and we're so quick to wanna to throw other people overboard? And so Jonah's like, I know, I've experienced that. I, I knew that you were filled with unfailing love and thank God he was, or Jonah would be dead, but we forget. We forget we needed a fish. We forget when we were thrown overboard. Verse three says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, verse four, is it right for you to be angry about this? Verse five, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen. He wanted these people destroyed so bad that even though God said he had changed his mind, Jonah's like holding out hope. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased Jonah's discomfort. And he was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it was withered, so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this. I mean, my man is dramatic. This is, reminds me of living with an 11 and 12 year old. All right, right here. And then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And so this last verse, God wants to make a really important point to Jonah. God says, and I'm gonna say this paraphrasing my way, why do you feel so sorry about a plant that died? 
but you're not concerned about 120,000 people dying in spiritual darkness. That's a great question we could ask about so many things in our life. Like, why do we care so much about something that doesn't matter, but not care about the souls of people? Why do we care so much about, about trivial things, but we've lost the heart for lost people? So God says to Jonah, You're, you are furious, angry, mad, disproportionately mad about a plant, but yet you want me to kill 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness? Last thing God says, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that's it. That's the end of the story. What a terrible ending. Like it's... Um, if you happen to have a, a, a child story Bible book at your house, maybe you read it to your kid at night as you're tucking them into bed. I don't know if you have one. I have a couple at my house and I wanted to check because I just want to make sure what I was saying was true. But I would be willing to bet if you went home and found your children's story Bible and you found the story of Jonah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say chapter four is not in there. They summarize the story and they end at the end of chapter three. And it makes all the sense in the world. If it ended at chapter three, it's a revival, it's redemption. It's a city turning to God. Chapter four, I don't really know how you explain chapter four to a six-year-old right before they go to sleep. I'm not <laughs> sure how you do that. That's why they leave it out. It makes sense. But I'm so glad that it didn't end at the end of chapter three because sometimes, often we, we make Bible characters into heroes that they're not. And chapter four really gives us a look, a glimpse into Jonah's heart. And so here's what I wanna do for the time that we have together is I want us to look and try to figure out why Jonah was so upset. So we'll pick on Jonah for a couple of minutes, but then I want us to try to figure out why we get so upset with God. Why do we get so mad at God? Why do we get so dramatic with God? Why do we, why do we act like Jonah acts with God? Now, ours wasn't about Nineveh, but we still act that way with God. So we'll, we'll try to learn why Jonah was so upset, and then maybe that will help us understand why we get so upset. So let's look at why Jonah's so upset. In Jonah's case, it was about patriotism and nationalism and biases and prejudices. Jonah was not against God being merciful. Jonah was against God being merciful to anyone he didn't want God to be merciful towards. Jonah was a Jew. Jews were the descendants of Abraham, God's chosen people. So Jonah took great pride in his nationality. He took great pride in his, his family name, his heritage. He lived in Israel, which was God's promised land, set apart for his people. So he took great pride in where he lived. Maybe you know people like this that assume that their zip code is better than your zip code. This was Jonah. My land's better than your land. My name's better than your name. My people are better than your people. Jonah wanted his people and his land to expand and to grow. He wanted his enemies to be destroyed and Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian, uh, Syrian empire. 
They stood in direct opposition to the country that he loved. They bullied the Israelites. They defeated the Israelites multiple times and Jonah hated them. So, so Jonah loved his country, he loved his people, and he wanted to see his country and his people grow and flourish. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting your country and your people to grow and flourish until it becomes too important. And this is, this is an important lesson for us to learn today and, and clarifier because we usually think of sin as, as doing or wanting bad things. Sin has kind of taken on the, the list of thou shalt not. But the very first commandment, the very first one, is thou shalt have no other gods before you. You, you can't worship something else more than you worship God. It was the very first commandment of the 10. It doesn't get as much attention because we don't believe that that's something we struggle with as maybe other people struggle with some of the other commandments. But the very first commandment that God said is, don't worship something else more than you worship me. That's the ultimate sin. The worshiping something else more than you worship God. And so sin is not as much a list of thou shalt not as much as it is giving our heart to something more than we give our heart to God. And there's a Bible word for this. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek. You'll feel smarter today. The Greek word is epithemia, epithemia. And this is in the New Testament in lots of different places, but the, the older translations of the Bible translated that Greek word epithemia to the word lust. So for example, I'll just give you one example, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I'll just read it to you. It says, walk in the spirit. This is the New King James, older translation. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the epithemia of the flesh. Uh, the flesh lusts against the spirit, epithemia, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you, that you wish, right? So for us as modern readers, we hear the word lust and we think of something sexual, but that's not really what the, the, the original Greek of the Bible was trying to say. And I don't want to get like lost in the weeds of detail because most of the time the Bible makes sense the easiest explained way. But there are times when you have to look a little deeper. And so lust, like in a sexual form is not what the Bible was talking about when it was written using that word epithemia. Now, now more modern translations like New Living, a lot of us have New Living Translation Bibles. It doesn't use the word lust, but it uses the word desires. So for example, Galatians 5, 16, 17 in New Living says, the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Those two desires there are epithemia. And these two forces are constantly fighting at each other and making it hard for you to carry out your good intentions. So the Bible is saying that there are, there's something fighting against what God wants in your life and what's fighting against what God wants for your life is epithemia. It's not lust sexually and desires doesn't even really do a good, I guess a service to the word because epithemia really means not just desires, but epithemia really you could say means over desires, over desires. The, the actual definition would be an obsessive drive 
or longing. So it's not just desires, it's over desires, this obsessive driver longing. So if, if that's what epithemia means, it would be fair to say, if we read Galatians 5, 16 and 17, that the spirit gives us obsessive drive or longing that are opposite from a sinful thing inside of us that also has obsessive drives or longing. So in essence, the Bible is saying that the spirit has things that it wants you to desire, but your sinful part of your heart has things that you want, you desire, and you over-desire them. Does that make sense to everybody? So that was like a five minute Greek lesson. Okay, so you're smarter, but it's important. It's important enough to take the time to talk about it because the main problem of our hearts is not so much a desire for bad things. It's really an over desire for good things. See, the biggest temptation you'll face in life is not sex, drugs, greed, violence. That's not the biggest temptation that you'll face. The biggest temptation you face is loving your kids too much, loving your house too much, loving your career too much, wanting a husband or wanting kids too much, wanting to be accepted too much, wanting freedom too much, wanting comfort too much, wanting success too much. That's what's competing against the spirit in your life. The reason you do the things that you do that are sinful is not because of those things. It's because of the over desires in your heart for what you want. So the spirit has something that it wants for you, but yourself, your sinful desire wants other things too. And we can get obsessive and want those things too much. And so they're good things. They're good things. They're not bad things. They're good things. But we just want them too much. And this is what happened to Jonah. Loving your country is not a bad thing. But Jonah loved his country too much. Wanting influence and power, not necessarily a bad thing. You could do a lot of good with influence and power. But Jonah wanted influence and power too much. And so God lets him run to a boat, buy a ticket, go the opposite direction, go through a storm, get thrown overboard, get swallowed by a fish, go back to Nineveh, preach, watch all these people get uh, repent and turn away from God to go sit under a tree so that he could finally have the conversation with God that he needed to have the whole time. He does the same thing for you and me. He lets us run and run and run and run and run and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight just to get us to the moment where we can finally have the conversation that we've been needing to have the whole time. And the conversation is not about marijuana, sex, living with your boyfriend, uh, wanting to make money too much. That's not what the conversation is about. The conversation is about what you're really trying to get. And those are just symptoms of the thing in your heart that you're trying to get. And what the conversation that happens between Jonah and God, it's not pretty, but it's honest. It's honest. And here's what I've learned in my life. And here's what I've watched happen in your life is how we react is way more honest than how we act. 
See, we know how to act, but when we react, we're usually telling the truth. And so for Jonah, Jonah reacts. We read these words and he's angry with God and he's reacting to God in this way because what's really coming out of his heart is, is, is the idols in his life for, for country, for, for nationalism, for, for power, for influence. And he wants those things and he thinks God wants those things for him. But when what God wants is in direct opposition to what he really wants, that's when he gets honest and he realizes that maybe he is worshiping another God above his God. Now, if I was preaching this message 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, maybe 12 years ago, somewhere in that time frame, this is the part in the message where I would probably say, now for Jonah, it was political or national victory, but it's, it's not political or national victory for any of us. That's not what we're wanting, but I'm not so sure anymore actually because the lines have been blurred between country and Christianity so much that we can think that God wants what we want for a country or for a people. And we don't ever realize that we actually want what we want for country or people more, too much. And when we come face to face with what God wants compared to what we want, and we maybe are finally getting a glimpse that maybe what God wants is not exactly what we want. There is this tension. And it's not country for everybody. It's not, it's not power for everybody, but all of us have idols in our life that are competing for our loyalty to God. All of us, all of us. And when I say idols, don't think of like statues in the Bible. Yes, that was something that they worship, but that's not how we do it now. But the equivalent would be us going and finding the things that we actually worship and then melting them down and building a statue out of them. So it'd be like somebody coming over your house and say, oh, what is that? It's like, oh, that's all the TVs that I've melted down to make a pole. That's all my fishing poles or golf clubs, or that's my old lake boat. I just melted it down and made a pole. And then every day when I come home, I just bow down and say, you make me feel a way no one else makes me feel. That's an idol. We just don't have a pole in our front yard, but we worship something. We worship something and love something more than God, just like Jonah. And when I say that you think, well, I mean, I don't do that. I mean, I have things I enjoy, but I don't worship them more than God. And the reason we think that way is because our heart is wicked. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we're blind to the areas of our life that we have blind spots to our own sin. And so how can we know? How can we know what the, because we all have them. How can we know what the idols are in our life? Well, I think we can use a filter that Jonah gave us and chapter four, verse three, when Jonah said this statement, Jonah said, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Now, what Jonah was saying literally was, I would rather face death than face the humiliation of a loss for me and for country. Death is better than humiliation because, because Jonah's idol was, was power. And when your idol is power or control, 
death is humiliation. And so Jonah is using this, he's saying this sentence, but this sentence is a perfect example or a perfect filter that we can use to begin to identify the things in our life that we potentially worship more than we worship God. So what if we were to use this filter on you or for me? I would rather die than fill in the blank. I would rather die than even if that's what God wants. See, idols shape our desires and motivations and behavior. And we all pursue something or protect something because we believe that whatever that thing is, is what we need to feel alive or stay safe or powerful. And whenever that becomes threatened or taken away from us, it can feel like life itself is being taken away from us. So maybe you would say, I'd rather die than be poor again. I'd rather die than let down the people that I love. I'd rather die than be overweight. I'd rather die than be alone. I'd rather die than be tied down. I'd rather die than forgive that person who did what they did. What we begin to identify when we use this filter is we begin to identify that we actually do believe that there are things worse than death and there are things better than God, like money, image, influence. And when we feel the idols in our life slipping away, how we react is way more honest than how we act. See, if, um, if achievement is an idol in your life, and, and you don't worship it more than God. No, nobody would do that, but it really means a lot for you to achieve. And then one day you have children and it's really important for your children to achieve. And you don't maybe say it this way, but your children achieving in a way makes you feel like you're achieving. So man, you enroll them in sports early. You're teaching them, you know, two a days out in the backyard. You know, you're massaging the hamstrings. You're, 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 you know, you're getting this thing going. Three leagues, year round, travel. Let's do this thing. And then one day, now you don't know it's an idol, but one day they walk in and they say, hey dad, um, I don't wanna play anymore. How you react is way more honest than how you act. Cause how you act is like, you know, yeah, I mean, I just want them to kind of, you know, have fun with it. But when they say, I don't wanna play anymore, how you react is, what do you mean you don't want to play anymore? We're playing. You made a commitment. Now, why? Why would we disproportionately flip out about a 12-year-old not wanting to hit a ball? Because what we're realizing is achievement is what defines us. When we look in a mirror and we see our image, and we step on a scale and we are up 0.03 pounds. But our reaction is, why are you so fat? Why are you so ugly? Why can't you ever get it together? Why are you so disappointing? Why don't you look better than all those other people? Why don't you look as good as all those other people? Why would we react that way about 0.03 pounds? 
because our image and being seen a certain way by other people is so valuable to us. Anything wrong with being in good shape? Absolutely not. But sometimes we can want it too much. Anything wrong with wanting your kids to succeed? Absolutely not. But maybe we want it too much. You're in a relationship with somebody and they say, maybe we need to take a break. What do you mean we need to take a break? I, I don't think we should take a break. I thought it was going great. I think we need... Anything wrong with wanting to be in a relationship? No. But how we react... When what we're building our life upon is getting taken away from us, lets us know potentially what is most important to us. And so let me just give you a list of some potential idols in your life. This is a broad list of categories and there's nuances in all these, of course, but I think it's a, I think it's a list that would help be helpful for us to get started. Some examples of idols would be power, approval, comfort, control, helping people, independence, achievement, religion, individuality, race, how we react. You know how many people I've had over the last four weeks or five weeks when the topic of race comes up and you say one thing and they go, I'm not racist. Trust me, I'm not. Okay, bud, got it. Why the reaction? Why so threatened? Potentially maybe too important. Family, the gifts of God that are laying in our cribs are sitting in the back seat of our van. And we love them so much and God gave them to us and we want them to be safe and we want them to succeed. And we want them to know that they're loved and we want them to have every opportunity Maybe too much, maybe too much. So how can we know of power, approval, comfort, control? How can we know if these things have become idols in our lives? I wanna, I wanna just give you two quotes. These quotes, I think, help us figure out the truth that's happening in our heart. Maybe even the antsy, Reaction of defensiveness that's happening right now. First quote's by Tim Keller. I quote him a lot. He says, where does your mind go during downtime or when you're tired or lonely or frustrated? In other words, he's saying, when you're in default mode, cruise control mode, what are you thinking about? What do you want? What do you turn over in your head or, what, or, or to make you feel better or to pass the time? That thing is apt to be or eventually become an idol to you. Mark Driscoll said it this way. He said, how would you define your own personal hell? Being fat or poor or bored or single? To what do you look to prevent you from living in this hell? Whatever it is, that thing is acting as your functional savior. It is the primary thing you sacrifice your time, money, attention for, and ultimately the thing that you worship. So what, what's important to you? And what could have potentially become too important to you? Would life be miserable without control and power? Could, could you go on if people you love didn't approve of you? 
Would you wanna keep living if you lost your quality of life? Could you function if you didn't feel like someone else was protecting you or keeping you safe? Speaking to Tim Keller, he, he tells a story about a, a Sunday back in the 1970s. He had, he had just started, he was fresh out of seminary and he had just started uh, pastoring this all white rural church in Virginia, a small congregation. And he said every now and then he'd like to just kind of provoke them, just kind of poke them a little bit, just kind of poke that religious bear a little bit. And so one day he was preaching a sermon on idols and he said, I asked the congregation, I said, you know, how, how would you know if potentially race has become an idol to you? He said, answer this question honestly. And he asked the congregation, he said, would you rather your child marry a white person who's not a Christian or a black person who's a Christian? And he said, if you would honestly answer white person who's a non-Christian, what you just admitted to yourself is your race is more important to you than your God. But we could replace race. We could say, would you marry your child, marry a wealthy person who's not a Christian or a poor person who is a Christian? And if your honest answer at your gut level is like, you know, honestly, maybe we could pray for him to come around, but I'd take the money. What you've just admitted to yourself is, is, is prestige and, and wealth and it's more important to you than God. Or what if you say, you know, I'd rather my kid marry someone who has a career and a path and a plan. Yeah, they don't love God, but you know, they've got a good head on their shoulders. Or, or I'd rather marry a, a person who has a great home and, 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 and is building something. Yeah, they don't know Jesus, but, or the person who loves Jesus with all their heart, but it's gonna be in your basement for a couple of years. See, these types of questions are revealing to us. We can say this is what's true, but how we react is telling us what the truth is. And so the, the final filter, the final question is it, for me, this is the filter that I use for, for me as I'm trying to examine potentially the things in my life that have become too important, the over desires in my life. Here's the filter that I use. I think it would be helpful for you. Let's imagine that right now life was over and we go to heaven, all of us, we go to heaven and we don't exactly know how heaven works, but let's just say that we go to heaven and we get nothing from this life gets to go with us. Not our marriage, not our children, not our home, not our money, not our hobbies, not our skills, not our influence, not our skin, not our face, not our personality, not our hair, not our teeth, not our name. Nothing from this world is taken with you. No one recognizes you. No one knows who you are. No one knows what you've done. The people you love, you don't recognize them. And I don't know how heaven's gonna work, but let's just say for this scenario that you get nothing from this world and you get to go to heaven. Now, Jesus is there forever, eternally. But nothing from this world goes with you. Would it be disappointing? Would it make you angry? Would you want to go? This is the way it works sometimes. But yesterday, my daughter and I were riding in the car and uh, my grandfather, 84 years old, got remarried yesterday. <laughs> and um, Meemaw, uh, his, his deceased wife, my Meemaw, passed away two years ago. And 
and uh, Sadie said, do you think Mimi, that's my mom, she calls her Mimi, do you think Mimi and Mima are hanging out in heaven? And I said, Sadie, I honestly don't know. We don't know how heaven's gonna work like that. But here's what I can promise you, you won't be disappointed. Because Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And as a pastor, I get to do a lot of funerals and over the years, well-meaning people who are grieving. So you take it with a grain of salt, but well-meaning grieving people say things that are misguided about heaven. And what we do without realizing that we do it is we identify what is most important, what was most important to that deceased person. And we take that and we make it sound like heaven is going to be forever what the deceased person really wanted the most in life. So we say, oh, they're loving it now because they get to play on the fairways of heaven every day of their life. They love it now because they're getting to ride on the lakes of heaven in that eternal pontoon boat, never looking back. They're getting to watch their favorite sports team all day. They're probably showing reruns of the greatest games up there. Now, I don't know a lot about heaven, but I'm assuming there's no golf courses or lakes or ESPN classics, could be. But here's what we're saying in an honest moment. We're saying, you know what was really most important to dad? The Cardinals. You know what was really most important to dad? The boat. You know what was really most important to mom? Her garden. And maybe now forever just looks like the thing that they really love the most for the rest of their life. But heaven is going to be, and it's supposed to be the thing where we get to be with what we love the most forever, Jesus. And as long as we live in this world, the spirit is going to give us desires, but our sinful heart is gonna give us over desires. And our fight will not be all the taboo sins of thou shalt nots. Our fight will be to fall in love with the things of this world too much. Instead of worshiping God and loving him the most. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that when we were lost, you sent what you love the most. You gave up what you love the most. You sacrificed what you love the most in your son so that we could be saved and have a relationship with you. So God, I pray that if we are here and at some point in our life, we felt that love of God, that love of Christ, but somehow our hearts have drifted and we've become more loving or more affectionate or more interested in something in this world. We, we've, we've grown to want it too much or love it too much. God, I pray that today the Holy Spirit would remind us again that you are the only thing that will satisfy our souls. God, if we found ourselves recently overreacting when things are being challenged in us or being taken away from us, will you let that be some insight into our hearts of what you're trying to do in us that potentially we want it too much. 
God, I pray if someone is listening to me right now and they've spent their life trying to fulfill all the desires in their heart, but they've never experienced you, they've never committed their life to you and experienced the love of Christ, that today, this moment, this service would be that time, that moment for them to experience the love of God for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.